Today I want to talk about the spirit that really exemplifies the wonderful people who serve in ministry and how we all should live as the people of God. Luke 17, 7. I'm reading in the New King James Version. And which of you having a servant plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and sit down and eat? But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? Jesus said, I think not. So likewise you, when you have done all those things which are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Tonight I want to speak to you on the subject, servants eat last. Servants eat last. You may be seated. The kingdom of God is governed by the king of kings and by his principles that make sense only to a person who has been regenerated or born again. And you can refer to my message on Sunday, September 1st to hear more about regeneration, what it means to have a regenerated spiritual nature. Jesus taught many truths that are hard to be understood. F.F. Bruce wrote a book on the hard sayings of Jesus. And Jesus taught things such as, when someone hits you on the cheek, turn the other cheek to that person. He taught us to love our enemies, to do good to those that despitefully use us. He told us that the dead should bury their dead. He told us that if you look back from following him, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus taught, at least to some people, that they should sell what they have, give it to the poor, and then they would have treasures in heaven. Jesus said that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus said the first will be last. He gave the 11th hour worker the same penny as he gave the man that bore the burden in the heat of the day. He said, if your right eye offends you and keeps you from living for God, you should just pluck it out and cast it from you. It's better to go to heaven with one eye than to go to hell with two. He said, if your right hand is offending you and causing you to not live for God, cut your right hand off. It's better to go to heaven with one hand than to go to hell with two. We know he wasn't teaching the doctrine of self-mutilization, but just whatever it takes to go to heaven, it's worth it. Amen? But that's hard stuff. Jesus taught radical discipleship, that if you love anyone more than him, you're not worthy of him. That includes father, mother, sister, brother, your spouse, or your own life also. And in 2019... There's a lot of people who are in love with themselves. And the Bible said that in the last days, people would be lovers of their own selves. Would be heady, high-minded, traitors, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. He said that's the kind of culture will exist in the last days. Now Jesus, in a world where self-promotion was the norm, 
as selfish ambition was epidemic, Jesus taught that true greatness begins with humility. He taught concepts that were foreign to the world then and foreign to the world now. He taught that you have to descend into greatness, that the way up is down, that the way to be exalted is to humble yourself. He taught the disciples who were jockeying for preeminence and position that unless they humble themselves, he said the servants of the Gentiles do those kinds of things. They lord their positions over their followers. But this should not be so among you. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you should be a servant. And then anyone who desires to be first should be last of all and servant of all. And it's always intrigued me that what I would call the week of the final exam, the week of his uh, betrayal and crucifixion, that the disciples in Matthew 20 were having this contention among themselves about who was going to be the greatest. And Jesus turned it on his head and taught that doctrine of self-denial and self-abasement on the way to greatness. If you think about the great heroes of the Bible, the Lord always led them down a path of disappointment on the way to the miraculous. You've heard me teach on the birth of a vision, the death of a vision, and the supernatural fulfillment of the vision. Abraham experienced delayed promises and disappointment on the way to having the miracle son Isaac. Before Joseph was elevated, he was put down. He was thrown down into a pit. Then he was taken down into Egypt according to Genesis 37. After he got there, lifted up at Potiphar's house, then he was put in prison, kind of kicked down there. And then after he interpreted the dreams of the butler and the baker, the butler forgot him and he was put down by being forgotten, the Bible says, for two whole years. Two full years, the Bible says. Psalm 105 says that when the Lord sent Joseph down ahead of them, that until his word came, the word of the Lord tried him. So you can guarantee that in your life, and I can assure you that in my life, the Lord will test you before He entrusts you. He always has, He always will. Paul spent three years in Arabia. Jesus spent 30 silent years. One decade of silence for every year of public ministry in the life of Jesus Christ. Jesus challenged the conventional wisdom that was rooted in selfishness and self-promotion And today I want to ask you three questions. I picked the first for my title. But I want to ask you, when do you eat, where do you sit, and who do you invite? When do you eat, where do you sit, and who do you invite? The thing you need to understand first about all of this is the relationship between a servant and a master in the Bible. You can apply some of this to an employee, employer relationship, But that only works so far. Then you have to remember that in the Bible, God always gives us balancing principles. The Lord is never going to tell a wife to submit to her husband's authority without telling a husband that he should love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. The Lord is never going to tell a child to obey his parents in the Lord for this is right without also telling a parent to provoke not your children to anger lest they be discouraged. 
The Lord is never going to tell a servant to obey his master without also telling the master that you also have a master who is watching over you. And you should give him what is due him, what is fair and what is right. So with that background, I want us to look at this passage that we read. I'm going to read it again and share some insights on the way to these three questions. Which of you having a servant plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he's come in from the field, come in at once and sit down and eat. Look at you. You're so hot and sweaty. You're tired. You've worked all day, right? But Jesus said you will not do that. Instead, you're going to sit down at the table, put your fork in one hand, your knife in the other, whatever, and you're going to tell your servant, here's what I want you to do. Go fix supper for me, serve me, and after you've served me, then you can get something to eat. And then, does that servant, he said, after he does all of that, he's worked all day in the field, he comes in, he serves his master, he finally gets to sit down and eat, does he think he's done something great because he just did that which was his duty to do? And Jesus said, I don't think so. In my vernacular, right? So then he says, so likewise you. Now he's applying the story, right? Now you, when you have done all those things that were commanded you to do, you can check all the boxes of saying, I am a good disciple of Jesus Christ. Then Jesus said, then you can say that I am an unprofitable servant because all I have done is what is required of me. That's a hard saying. I'm kind of offended by it myself. I don't know how you feel about it. I mean, what kind of master sits around the house all day long doing nothing? Has a guy out in the field plowing or working in the field, comes in the house, he's filthy dirty, sweat, his hair's all down in his face, both hairs on one on each side. And he doesn't know what his master's doing all day long. But he assumes he's been working harder. I'm sure he does. Most of us, if we portray ourselves as the servant in this story, think that our end of the load is a lot heavier than the other person's. We don't really know that the other guy, the master, was doing nothing, but kind of feels that way, doesn't it? My human nature is always to feel like my job is harder than yours. That, you know, I've got the heavy end of the load. Now, in that day, this servant has probably worked as long as 12 hours. And the reason I'm saying that, in the parable of the workers in the vineyard, the owner of the vineyard went out in the 11th hour of the day to hire one more time, and that guy only worked one hour. That was a 12-hour workday. Jesus said, are there not 12 hours in a day? And then Jesus said, I must work the works of them that sent me while it is day, for the night is coming when no man can work. Now let's say he got a lunch break and an afternoon siesta, because sometimes they did that in that part of the world because of the heat of the day and some parts of the, some seasons. He's worked at least 10 hours. And now he comes in. And what good master would not let his servant eat first. And that's the whole point of this story. Viewed from the eyes of our Western culture, 
of workers' rights and the union protection of workers, it sounds reasonable that if you've worked all day, you ought to be able to punch the clock, come in and say, sorry, sir, I'm off duty now. I've worked all day long. A nice master would have let his servant eat first. And Jesus is asking a question of an audience that already knows the answer. He assumes they know the answer. That the servant doesn't come in and eat first. That servants eat last. There's no embarrassment in this story at all. It's the way the, it's the, way the culture operated. And this seems to be a picture of a relatively modest home, not a wealthy landowner. He doesn't have multiple servants. He's just got one. And he does all the outdoor work. Then he comes in and he does the household chores. And I know you already see this, that it's the biblical times and this is not a hired hand. He is a slave. He does not have rights. In our Western culture, we're all about rights. We don't understand lordship. We understand an employee-employer relationship and rights. And what's hard about this is that the servant comes in, he doesn't push back, he doesn't argue, there's no debate, and Jesus assumes that this is just the way it is in this culture and, and no one questions it at all. And this story teaches us the spirit of serving. The master says, take care of me, and then afterward, you can eat and drink. He asked the master, the servant, to serve him first. Verse 9 tells him that he commanded him to do it. Because if you do just that which is your duty to do, that you've been commanded to do, you're an unprofitable servant. And then, this is the really mind-blowing part about it all. In verse 9, Jesus said, does he thank that servant? Does he have a volunteer Sunday? Which I think is a great idea. I'm not against volunteer Sundays. But he doesn't give him an award. He doesn't even pat him on the back. This guy is just doing that which is expected. Now, probably if you really think about it, it doesn't mean that the master never said thank you. But if you study the custom and you study the parable, what Jesus is saying is, that even though the servant served his master, it did not reverse the roles. It did not put the master in an obligatory role toward the servant. He didn't know the servant anything because of the servant's work for him. And right now you're thinking, and I think when I read this story, that it sounds a little bit harsh. And you might be saying, I would never work for anyone like that unless it was Jesus and then he puts himself in the role of the master and he puts us in the role of the servant and he tells us that servants eat last. And if you only do what is demanded of you, verse 10, so likewise, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, then you can look in the mirror and tell yourself, look at me, I've done everything I've commanded to do. I'm an unprofitable servant. Wow, that's encouraging, isn't it? So here, here's what Jesus is saying. That obedience is expected. 
Radical obedience is expected in the kingdom of God. Now, this is really not the subject of my message tonight, but it's pretty important for us from our Western mindset, our rugged individualism, our rights, for us to think that God is an employer instead of a master. That we can negotiate with him. And we can kind of come to an agreement about what we think we should do, what's expected of us. This is one of the issues with practical holiness in the lives of people and about true discipleship is that we rationalize away whatever would be a commandment from the Lord because we think we ought to have a say in it. And I'm not talking about Pastor John's, member of the congregation. I'm talking about you and me and Jesus. Not you and your pastor. All right? But I do believe there's pastoral spiritual authority, but that's not my subject tonight. Obedience is expected, and servants eat last, and the blessing comes when you go the second mile, not the first mile. And it's kind of interesting that when Jesus finishes saying that, it's the end of the story. He just moves on. Literally, when you read verse 11 in Luke 17, it happens that he went to Jerusalem. He just, that's the end of that, and he goes on his merry way and moves on to something else. And he just leaves us all kind of hanging there. The Apostle Paul is very clear to say that he is a servant of Jesus Christ. He opens the book of Romans like that. He opens the book of Titus by saying, Paul is servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. The word minister in the Bible is to serve as a slave under obligation. That's who we are. And we have to kind of change our mindset to understand that if you're going to serve in the kingdom of God, that servants eat last. So would you just say that with me? Servants eat last. You're not clawing for the front of the line. You're willing to serve and eat last. Well, I know everybody can't eat last. Right? Someone has to eat first and someone has to eat last. But the spirit of deferring to others and serving other people and radical obedience is a point of that parable. Now the next question I want to ask you after you've already been offended by servants eat last is where do you sit? So let's look at another story by Jesus. Um, I'm going to get to Luke 14, but I want to read a passage. I'm going to try to not preach on it. I'm just going to read it through. You can follow along, and we'll let the passage speak for itself. And Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit, where do they sit? In Moses' seat. That's where they sit. A place of really high authority. Moses was that revered prophet. The Bible said there's never been another one like him till Jesus. I mean, Moses was in a class all by himself. And these Pharisees and scribes, those authoritative interpreters of the law, they they sat down in Moses' seat, a place of absolute authority. Therefore, Jesus said, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. Jesus said to obey them. But do not according to their works... For they say, and they do not do. In other words, they know how to tell you what to do, 
but they don't practice what they preach. That doesn't mean you get to do that, right? Even if you've got a leader who tells you and doesn't practice what, if they tell you the right thing, you should do it because it's right. Let God take care of them. Verse 4, For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. By all their works, but, but all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best places at feasts. Where do you sit? Best seats. The best seats in the synagogues. When they go to church, there must have been like this reserve section for rich people in the synagogue. And that's where they wanted to be. They love, verse 7, greetings in the marketplaces and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But you do not be called Rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. He's trying to bring into balance all of this Radical respect that should be shown to God that these men had usurped and taken for themselves. But he who is the is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. My second question tonight is, where do you sit? At work, at home, at church, in ministry, where are you trying to sit? Are you jockeying for prominence? Now, Luke chapter 14 is an amazing story. It takes place at a dinner party where Jesus has been invited as a guest. And Luke 14.1, you can turn there in your Bibles or watch on the screens. We're talking in about tonight about the spirit of people who serve in ministry. Okay? Now it happened as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath that they watched him closely. I love that. So he asked them about healing on the Sabbath day and that's kind of the first story there. And then in verse 7... So he told them a parable to those who were invited when he noted how they chose the best places. They watched him closely, but guess what? He watched them closely too. And he watched where they sat. So here they are at this dinner party. They're probably, I just envision them lined up at the front door and when the doors open, there's this mad rush for the best seats. And he said to them, and I'll get to that in a bit, the Pharisaic practice was to promote oneself at a feast by sitting as close as possible to the host. The closer you were to the host, the more prominent and important you were seen to be. So everybody's clamoring to get as close as possible to that person. Verse 8. When you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place. 
lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him come to you and say, give place to this man, and then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. All the other seats are taken, but the lowest seat in the house. So they've kind of got like what we would call, you know, the agricultural word, a pecking order, right? If you understand what that phrase means. So here this guy is running the door. He sat down as close as he can get to the host. And he's all comfy, man. He is so proud of himself. And then he looks and an usher comes up, taps him on the shoulder. Excuse me, sir. The mayor was supposed to sit here today. And I'm so very sorry. There's only one seat left. And it's right by the door. And that's for you. God bless you. Have a nice day. <laughs> Does Jesus not say that you <laughs> begin with shame to take the lowest place? He's got to go over there. You know he's not smiling. He doesn't enjoy one minute of the rest of the dinner. He doesn't care about the bride and their vows and unity candle and the kiss. I mean, he, he doesn't even care about any of that. He's just sitting over there so humiliated like, oh, man. So, Jesus asked the question, where do you sit? And then, verse 11, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, is this in the Bible or am I making this up? <laughs> I think I'm in, uh, this is in the Bible, isn't it? This is right there in your Bible. So, if you and your desire for acceptance or recognition or honor promote yourself, you're likely to be demoted. And Jesus was teaching on the danger of presumption and on the merits of humility. If you go in the door and you sit at the lowest seat possible on the back row, what's the, what's the worst thing that could happen? You're stuck on that last seat. You're there. What's the best thing that could happen? Some guy who's really like you in his heart actually sat in that seat and you swap places with him. Isn't it better to assume the role of a servant and be recognized for your attitude and exalted than to assume the role of a VIP and be booted <laughs> down to the lowest seat at the wedding feast. Everybody got it? Take the lowest seat. So, when do you eat? Where do you sit? When I was in Bible college, uh, we started to practice, we, as much as possible, we tried to eliminate a head table. You know that, I mean, I've been to events when a head table was practical. I'm not preaching against a head table. Some people only get the part they want, like one little thing, you know. It's like out of context. But, you know, I've been to events and there's a head table and it's like elevated and all the VIPs sit there. And I think it's cool at a wedding or maybe the wedding party is all together. There's nothing wrong with that. But we just thought, you know what, we're trying to say something to this student body. 
So why don't we just eliminate that head table? We'll all sit the same kind of round tables, and sometimes it makes sense. There's a practical reason for having reserved seats. This is kind of the spirit of the church where they're really, the head honcho should be the servant of all. And Jesus himself exemplified this. He's the Lord of all, but he condescended. He came to this earth, took upon himself the form of a servant, right? Philippians 2 tells us, and he served all of us. At, at that last supper, John 13 tells us that in that room that day, giant egos, smelly feet, and no one is going to go take the towel and wash the other disciples' feet. All the peers are trying to, to find a place of prominence, and it is your Lord and Master, Jesus said. If I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, he doesn't say you ought to wash my feet. You ought to wash one another's feet, which is a lot harder than washing the master's feet. It's easy to wash the master's feet, but it's very hard to wash one another's feet. John 13, check it out. You ought to read that passage. You've heard it over and over if you've been here 24 years. Now, when do you eat? Where do you sit? Jesus, in the same passage, moves on to another story about our attitudes of serving. Luke 14, 12. He asks the question, who do you invite? When do you eat? Where do you sit? Who do you invite? Then he also said to them, the one who invited him, when you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they invite you back and you, are, and you be repaid. Now, I don't think Jesus is saying that you can never get together with friends. But in that, in that day and in our day, there are people who really try to be exclusive. You know, members only jackets that were big, you know. And just, just as uh, Jesus' hosts and other guests there were honor-seeking and trying to find a place, they would invite people over to their dinner because they were wealthy, influential, prominent in the community, and it was like political favors, Right? I invite you over to my big dinner party. You invite me over to your big dinner party. We're going to talk shop. We're going to get all the contracts. We're going to be insiders. That's the way it worked in that day. You know what name dropping is, right? I had dinner the other day with whoever. Yeah, you know, so-and-so and I are tight. Good friends. What is name dropping all about? Name dropping is about you thinking more of me because of who I hang out with. If I can associate with somebody that's like this, then maybe you're going to think that I'm like that too. Man, it's really quiet right now. This is so awesome. You may think that I love it. I love it, you know, because, see, I've already got to preach this sermon to myself. You didn't have that advantage. 
it's just as convicting to me <laughs> as I think it might be to our culture and maybe you. Of course, none of us need this tonight. We're just reading this because it's good Bible, you know. It doesn't apply to anybody here. Verse 13. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind. Well, that's going to be embarrassing. You know, this really fancy dinner, you do have some VIPs there, but then all of a sudden here comes this guy, he's like limping in the door. There's another person, he's maimed in battle, he looks disfigured and people can hardly look at him, he's so grotesque. Then there's a guy tapping his way along, trying to find a place to sit at dinner. Ugh, these people are embarrassing. He would, who would want anybody like that? At a fancy dinner. Jesus said in verse 14, if you do that, you will be blessed. You will be blessed. You will be blessed. Why? Because they cannot repay you. For you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Can you imagine seeing a picture? You get a news, you know, on your phone and you pull it up, it's got pictures of a Hollywood gala. And there's all these like wealthy, prominent stars and sitting right beside them is a, is a blind beggar that they got off the street to sit right there at the head table with them. They're never going to do that. They're never going to do that. I mean, there might be a publicity stunt one day when they do that. They might do a benefit, and I'm not saying they never have a sincere motive to do a benefit, but when it comes to who they hang out with, who's in your circle, it's going to be everybody that I think is better than me, so it looks, makes me look better. Now, I've known people at churches churches who were repulsed when someone from Hope Ministry brought a homeless person to church. Obviously not one of us. You can smell them before you can see them. Years ago, one of our members brought some special needs ladies to church. We enjoyed them thoroughly. Some choir members remember this vividly. Yeah, I see you right now, already laughing. I haven't even told the story and they remember. These ladies were on the front row. I walked over to greet one of these ladies. And she grabbed my hands and started dancing with me in the front of the church. The choir lost and it was not the Holy Ghost. I leaned over to tell this precious, special needs older lady that the men did not dance with the women in our church. And when I did, she kissed me on the cheek. Oh, yes, she did. Am I telling the truth?
<laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> you have to wait a long time to tell stories like that. Can't tell them right away. Back in the day, you know, my sister just reconnected with a young girl we brought to church on our bus route when we were teenagers. And uh, it's a pretty incredible story. We didn't know uh, what was going on in their home. These four little kids, I won't say any names tonight. But I remember the Easter Sunday when we had 95 kids on our bus and 815 in church, if I remember right, that day. And and those classrooms were jammed. I don't think any teaching got done. And there are a lot of kids from the projects and from very poor homes at church that day. And, you know, but it was awesome. So I've been around church my whole life, right? And I've been embarrassed by a few things that have happened. You know, I probably embarrassed someone before. Uh I wonder if sometimes the Lord looks down and goes, much proud people watch this. I think this is like some kind of a place where everything's supposed to be perfect. Everybody's supposed to be pretty, have their act together, no issues. Kind of, I know I'm making an application here of the dinner Jesus spoke about. What kind of church do you want? Everybody's rich, famous, everybody's well-dressed, everybody's got their act together. You want a church when like the blind and the lame and the poor and messed up? Who do you invite? I know we just launched small groups and it is with intention that I'm talking about this right now. You've heard us say it over the last few weeks. But small groups are wonderful, a friendship circle. I used to be a youth pastor, and cliques were dangerous. And I studied about cliques and preached against cliques. A clique is a group of small friends, right? Close, a small group of friends. Nothing wrong with that until it becomes exclusive. You couldn't get in. You couldn't bomb your way into that circle. And I know families, people with common interests, I understand relationships. I understand a lot about relationships. I think I do. And it's not all evil. It's not evil. But you understand there's a, there's a tendency to become ingrown, to become exclusive. We've been saying that instead of a circle, we need to have an open you, that there's room. You know, I grew up on that song, There's Room at the Cross for You. Though millions have come, there's still room for one. Yes, there's room at the cross for you. And and I have this parenthetical statement in my notes that I just want to say, like, you know, fair and balanced here, that we do have a safety team. We do believe in protecting our children. And if someone comes in the church that concerns us, there are plenty of people that are observing that person if we think they could become a danger to our people. 
So I understand, I understand that there are some wackos in our world, right? I understand that. And we've had people come to our church very rarely that we've had to say, you know what, you know, this is not going to work. No, you are not the prophet to this church. You are not. God bless you. You may be needed somewhere else. So I have this in my notes on purpose to just say that I'm not advocating anything goes and that you're not, you know, a shepherd, right? A shepherd protects sheep and kills wolves. If you're a shepherd, you do both. So there's a part of our church, and I don't mean just me, my, myself, and I. There's a part of our, shirt, our church that we love our people, we love our sheep, and we protect, you know, but we, we're guarded also. So that's okay. But that's really not my message tonight. It's just for those who might have taken it out of context. From this story, it seems pretty obvious that Jesus looks at our guest list. He looks, he looks. Luke 14, read it for yourself. He, he looks when you eat, but he looks where you sit, and he looks at who you invite into your world. And he's very specific that you should invite people who cannot return the favor. Somewhere in your world should be a person that you unselfishly love strictly for their sake with no hope that you can ever, that they, no hope that they can ever do anything for you. When do you eat? Where do you sit? Who do you invite? That's my message tonight. That servants eat last. So I want to ask you this last question. The worship team can come. Don't faint. It's early. I want you to think about this. How, well, they, you know, I asked Brother Cowden to write a song about this message. I expect all three questions to be in the song. I did not ask him to write a song about this message. I have before, you know, it never works. But I do want to ask you this question, and, and I need to think about this too, right? Because you, know, you, should, you should preach to yourself before you preach to anybody else, especially something like this, really. I mean, for people preach on hell as if they were hoping people would go there, right? And I was taught that if you preach on hell, you should do it with tears in your eyes, praying that nobody goes. So when you talk like this, you know, there's nobody here that's so righteous and holy and got it all worked out that we don't need to work on our own outlook about radical obedience to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, about when we eat and the role of a servant and you know, in our lives, one of the things that really affects people is, uh, is they feel that they've been overlooked. You know what I mean? Saying they feel like they've been overlooked. 
It's like John the Baptist sending his disciples to Jesus. Are you he that should come or should we look for another? And when the disciples of Jesus does miracles and sends them back to John, and then after they leave, and Jesus starts bragging on John, what a great man he is. But those guys that already left, John never heard those words, this side of glory. The feeling that we've been overlooked and our own deep insecurities or craving for recognition or prominence sometimes drives people to race for the best seat, demand their rights, hang out with the most prominent people. Because they're too insecure to afford to look like they have a friend, he's a loser. In our world, we really like laud people who go to the animal shelter and get this rescue dog. This is my rescue dog. Right? Right? You know, somebody paid $2,000 for that dog, but this is my rescue dog. This dog wouldn't have made it without me. What about a rescue person? He's not going to make it. If you don't mind, let's stand and if you have time, come to the altar and let's ask Jesus to help us. Be more like him who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation. Took upon himself the form of a servant. Help us be more like Jesus who was rich but for our sakes became poor that we through his poverty might be made rich. Jesus, help me, help the guy preaching this, teaching this. Help all of us as a church, 